Chapter forty five, part one of Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Autobiography, Memories, and Experiences, volume two by Moncure Conway. Chapter forty five, part one. The friendly intervention of Thomas Hughes brought me an invitation from Professor Jowett to be his guest in Balliol College at the Oxford Commemoration, June 1863. The professor was a great man to us in America. We pictured him as a martyr, starving on forty pounds a year for having written one of the essays and reviews. It was more important to see him than to witness any commemoration. My welcome began at the foot of the long stairway leading to the professor's apartment in Balliol. The wall beside it was hung with large photographs of the great teachers of the time, among them Darwin, Carlyle, Browning, and Tennyson. A dignified valet met me with messages from the professor. He must be busy with examinations all day and could not even be back to dinner. I must make myself at home and should go to see the great garden party, for which he left cards. The old wainscoted room, that of an absent tutor, set apart for me, was not only elegant, but had in it a friendly odour of tobacco, true Virginia hospitality. After seeing the beautiful garden party and strolling among the colleges, I returned for the half-past seven dinner. I prepared for possible eventualities by donning evening dress, and thus all alone I feasted in a grand room on a dinner so excellent that I felt nervous. Had Jowett supposed me an ambassador? About an hour after dinner the professor entered with a quick light footstep, and said he had come before going to a committee to ask if I had all I needed, and to say what I might expect next day, the great day. He was forty-six and slightly grey, but his blond complexion, somewhat rosy, and his happy look and voice were not suggestive of ordeals. Only the February before he had been summoned before the vice-chancellor's court on account of essays and reviews, but had successfully denied its jurisdiction. Jowett knew nothing of me except what Tom Hughes told him, that I was an anti-slavery Virginian come over to give some addresses concerning the struggle in America. My religious heresies were as yet unknown. Jowett was interested in the American conflict, and at breakfast eager with questions. When I resolutely changed the subject and began to talk about Harvard, Emerson, and Essays and Reviews, he responded with more personal interest, and the conversation became what I had hoped for, or was becoming such, but, lo, the old oaken room was invaded by a bevy of young ladies, fresh as morning roses who circled around the scholar, delivered messages from old friends, talked about brothers and cousins about to graduate until the grave professor was transformed to a flaxen-haired youth. He graciously introduced me, and the various companies of the day were thereby rendered pleasanter. Also it was some compensation for the interrupted conversation to see the grave professor, the martyr, entering easily into all the affairs and petty gossip of the young dames and arranging their day for them. In after years, when the persecution had ended and Jowett had become master of Balliol, and vice-chancellor of the university, I saw him at times, and wondered whether he might not be regarding those burdensome honours as the martyrdom, and looking back to the forty-pound years as the happier. 
Jowett appeared to me different from other religious liberals. Those called advanced thinkers in both America and England were moving forward on a kind of track laid down by the science and scholarship of their time. But Jowett impressed me as a man who belonged to earlier and greater religious ages. When thorns first sprout, the camel may browse on them, but when they are old they tear his lip. So said the sheik Saadi, and it is a fair parable of the church, which in the seventeenth century nourished the free minds and hearts of Jeremy Taylor and George Hebert, of Tollitson and Dean Swift. Jowett belonged to their race. I never heard him preach, but I heard him lecture at the Royal Institution on the daemon of Socrates, and I doubt if any other clergyman since Swift was so free from the clerical accent. He was keenly interested in the persons engaged in the religious movements going on around him. But did he take the movements themselves seriously? It is true that, of the positivist church, he reported that he found there three persons and no God. I was told another story that I can almost believe. Before the new era of open university doors for unbelievers, a young man came to Professor Jowett in distress on the morning of the day for subscribing the articles, and said, Alas, I have studied and searched and can find in the universe no God. Jowett pulled out his watch and said quietly, You must find one by quarter past four. I have one or two anecdotes about Jowett that may be mentioned. I asked him about Socrates' last words. We owe a cock to Aesculapius. Whether they were genuine, and if so, whether they should be interpreted as a tribute to health, or to the healing art, or had any philosophical significance. He thought the words genuine, and that Socrates meant only what he said. During the trial of Rev. Charles Voysey for heresy, I was present at a dinner given by the Honorable and Rev. Mr. Fremantle. Dean Stanley and Jowett were present, and when the ladies had retired the conversation fell on the exciting case. Jowett said, Voysey looked too far over the hedge. Dr. James Martineau told me that when he received his degree of LL.D. at Oxford, he was the guest of Dr. Jowett, master of Balliol. George Eliot and G. H. Lewes were also guests at the same time. One day, said Martineau, when I was alone with Jowett, he said, I don't think much of George Eliot's religious ideas. She merely denies the authority of the Bible, and there stops. Dr. Martineau mentioned this in a talk on intellectual honesty that a clergyman and master of Balliol should regard denial of the authority of the Bible as but rudimentary filled him with wonder. But I could not look at it in that way. Jowett was not another Martineau, he was himself. And the thing needed is that a man should be his single, genuine self. I had many provincial prejudices to get rid of after settling in England. It appeared at first the plainest duty in the world to unite with the dissenters in their agitation for the separation of church and state. After a year or so I began to wonder at never seeing at their meetings any of the great liberal thinkers, none of the scientific men. My South Place people even all trained in reforms, though listening respectfully to my discourse in favor of disestablishment of the church, never joined the society organized for that end. I began to suspect something wrong about the cause, and caught some light from an incident that occurred at Zion College. Dr. Tate, then Bishop of London, presiding over a discussion on the National Church, 
said in his opening address that it was proved in America what sad results came from disestablishment. The people went off into Socinianism. The bishop did not know that the greatest of the Socinians was present, James Martineau, and could not understand the amusement caused by his remark, until, to his embarrassment, Martineau was called for. The Socinian began by saying, Notwithstanding the temptation offered by his lordship, I am an Englishman before I am a Socinian, and not prepared to advocate disestablishment. He then proceeded to present his idea of a national church, freed from its antiquated creeds, and enlarged so as to include all of the serious religious organizations in the country. I did not and do not now hold the views of Dr. Martineau on the subject, but I revised the whole matter carefully, and reached the conclusion that I had been cheated by the phrase, Separation of Church and State. No genuine separation of that kind has ever taken place. In America the separation of church and state has invariably meant merely the separation of the state from one particular church, the English church, to the extent only of establishing all sects along with it. By the exemption of church property from taxation the whole community is taxed in the interest of those churches. Then, by the legal establishment of the aggregate Sabbatarianism of the churches, by appointing and paying national chaplains, by supporting in treaties and by military force the propaganda of missionaries in foreign lands, Orthodox Christianity is made a national American institution. Sectarian churches are indeed all enjoying established privileges in America unknown to the English church. For in England the established church has only a life interest, and a very limited interest, in its endowments and edifices. The property belongs to the secular state, it is under the control of a parliament containing Jews, Catholics, pagans, freethinkers. The whole country participates in the disposal of every pound sterling. No citizen can be excluded from its vestries. No subscription to creed or article is required of him. But in the United States, while the taxes of a wealthy freethinker, like the late Robert Ingersoll, are larger because church property is exempt, he being thus taxed for sects and dogmas he repudiates, he cannot sit in synod or conference and say what shall be done with his money. It is taxation without representation. Matthew Arnold, having written an essay criticizing the attitude of the English dissenters, James Martineau answered him with severity in a lecture given at Manchester New College, London. This I heard. It was able, but I did not find it satisfactory. I happened to meet Matthew Arnold the same day and told him something about the lecture. He said, Oh, Martineau is not one of them. He is one of us. He then went on to explain that Martineau did not wish to set up an antagonistic church to overthrow and supplant the Church of England. He was simply a rationalistic critic of the intellectual errors of the Church, aiming to liberalize it. Not long after, traveling in a railway compartment with Martineau, I told him what Matthew Arnold had said. He admitted that he did not sympathize with the dissent detached from the established church, merely on the grounds of its traditional institutions, episcopy, etc., while holding the same creed. This was an admission that Arnold was substantially right. When the Voysey case came on, and many theists were uniting with churchmen in declaring it his duty to resign the clerical profession, 
I wrote to him, expressing the opinion that when a clergyman reached views different from those he had honestly held on receiving orders, he should throw on the church the burden of dealing with him. It was not his duty to resign, but the reverse. He should avail himself of the opportunity honorably come by to compel the church to define the limits of its toleration. The existing articles and creeds had been for many generations so modified by legal decisions and interpretations that it was not just to the youth of the nation, liable to enter on clerical life, for any heretical clergyman to constitute himself an ecclesiastical court, and determine that he had no lawful right in the church. This view is paradoxical to Unitarians. Dr. Martineau, who had retired from the pulpit, attended the chapel of the Rev. Stopford Brooke after the latter had left the English church. Brooke had been the most brilliant clergyman in London. I had sometimes heard his afternoon sermons, and used to meet him and his handsome daughters in society, chiefly at Mrs. E. Lynn Linton's receptions. His leaving the church impressed me as a calamity, and I expressed my regret. He was surprised, and told me he had felt himself in the wrong place. He said that Dean Stanley had urged him to remain, and preach his whole mind with freedom. But, said Mr. Brooke, I asked the dean, could James Martineau be made Archbishop of Canterbury? He answered no. Then said I, the church is no place for me. My reply was that if men like himself were to remain in the church, preach their convictions boldly, and omit every formula they did not believe, the church must steadily become such that a Martineau could become archbishop. Even if, after the church authorities had decided either to expel or to tolerate one or another phase of unbelief, the heretic should find that his sphere of influence was elsewhere, he might then leave with a feeling that he had done his whole duty by the national institution. Stopford Brooke then said that each individual must necessarily decide on the duty of his particular case. With this I agreed, with the reservation that each individual should be careful lest he should lay down a precedent or rule for the consciences of others. When Cardinal Newman, in the latter part of his life, visited Oxford, a distinguished company was invited to meet him. A generation had passed since he left Oxford. A friend who sat near him at table told me that Newman inquired of a master, "'What changes have come over Oxford since I left?' The answer was, greater than I can enumerate, chiefly this, the university has been largely secularized. Such a happy result is inevitable in a state church, and as the experience of the United States proves that Christianity cannot be really disendowed, it is better that a church historically evolved along with the secular state, and having received its living through the state, should be established. A single church also can be controlled, but not a combination of all churches. Voltaire said, All religions are equally untrue and equally necessary substituting inevitable for necessary, and regarding all the denominations with an eye solely to general human benefits, I saw that disestablishment would silence the only independent clergy. Apart from the debatable ground of theology, the English clergyman can say what he thinks. He may have been appointed to his living by some nobleman, yet may rebuke that nobleman to his face. My lord cannot touch him. He may criticize his bishop, or the government which appointed him, or condemn every prejudice of his congregation. They cannot remove him. 
if he be accused of immorality or heresy he can be tried before a court otherwise his pulpit is his castle through this independence the clergy have developed what dissenters call their worldliness the catholic church in europe began with asceticism holy men fled from the world as a city of destruction to a cavern or convent and women shut themselves in nunneries by that means the species was left to development by the more worldly outside convent walls the catholic church was thus gradually drawn into sympathy with popular festivities the maypole the dance protestantism swept all this away with its sabbatarianism and puritanism puritanism was a relapse far behind catholicism socially it recovered the ascetic thorns which catholicism had overlaid with roses of art and mirth it burnt pictures and built chapels that were models of ugliness the english church alone retains some of the artistic beauty and the humanities developed by previous centuries and it was the worldly head of the english church even charles i who reached his hand across the atlantic and stopped the pious murder of witches and quakers the english clergy do not object to lawn tennis and cricket on sunday at eversley charles kinsley formed a sunday cricket club for his parishioners and played with them in clubs to which bishops belong the billiards cease not on sunday thus the english church shields cultured society from puritanism if a rationalist preacher takes his family to the theatre the puritanical might call it the natural result of his heresies but as some clergyman's family may be in an adjoining box they cannot ascribe that to heresy this easy relation between the english church and the world which protects the young in their gaieties is felt in many parts of the world. End of chapter 45, part 1